Our scripture today is taken from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Paul wanted to visit Rome. He hadn't visited yet. So he writes, as he does in many of his letters, a very personal beginning. I begin at verse 7. Listen for the word of God. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of the Son, is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers, asking that by God's will I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I am longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather, so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Some of you have heard me in one room or conversation or another talk about this black folder. But I've never told this story to everybody, so I'm going to tell you today. This black folder is a story about Dick Stifler, who was, now passed away, a pillar, a pivotal member, participant, leader in my first congregation I served just north of Chicago in Wilmette, Illinois. Dick Stifler served on session. Dick Stifler served on committees. He often gave announcements. One Sunday morning he was giving announcements from the pulpit for that church like this one. Only had one pulpit where everything was done, jack of all trades, announcements, sermons, readings, anything that was going to happen happened in the pulpit. So Dick went up and gave his announcement. Now, he had already done it at our 8 o'clock service for Like Pinnacle. We had an 8 o'clock service and a 10 o'clock service. He had already given his announcement at 8 o'clock, and so I didn't, unbeknownst to me, when he finished his announcement at 10 o'clock, he snuck out the back and got in his car and drove all the way to a pumpkin festival in Gurnee. Don't forget that. Pumpkin festival in Gurnee because that's where my sermon went. <laughs> In gathering up his papers, Dick gathered every paper that was on the pulpit, and there sat my sermon in the trunk of his car in Gurnee. Now, I didn't know that Dick was going to Gurnee, so I said out loud in the service, is Dick Stifler in the room? No answer. 
I said, Dick, you have my sermon. No answer. Now, if I'd known Dick was in Gurney, I would not have said anything. But at that point, everybody knew what had happened. But we made it through. Worship was had, God was glorified, and we all went home. Dick Stifler came to my office the next day because he had heard what had happened. Red-faced, he came in into my office and apologized. Said, Dick, everything was fine, no worries. And then he pulled out this black, soft, leather folder. And he gave it to me. And he said, this is my gift so that your sermon will never be taken out of the pulpit again. <laughs> Every sermon I have preached since that Monday morning in Wilmette, Illinois, has been held in this black folder. And every time I hold this folder, I remember Dick Stifler. And I pray in it for his memory, for the church he loved, and for his loved ones. I am not in the pulpit today. I usually am, but today I want to be a little personal. And so I've come down to these steps to think back a little bit with some memories over 40 years, not nearly enough, but just a few thoughts, maybe inspired by Dick Stifler. Next Sunday, we look forward. Next Sunday, I'll, I'll be in the pulpit. But today, I want to remember. And I hope in my, some of my memories, some of which some of you have heard already, but I hope these memories serve the church as I think back on 40 years of ministry. One of my early memories of ministry is being called into ministry by the Philadelphia Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church. Now, I was from Michigan, but I was going to seminary in New Jersey and was serving in field education, a church in Glenside, Pennsylvania, in the Philadelphia Presbytery. And I was making a decision at that point to move from the Detroit Conference of the United Methodist Church to the Presbyterian Church. And so joined the church I was working in and became a candidate for ministry in the Philadelphia Presbytery. Now, the Philadelphia Presbytery had a bad reputation for being really hard on candidates. They actually were very welcoming. But when I finished seminary, for some reason, the faculty of the seminary decided that Avram still had some things to learn. So they gave me some money to go somewhere in the world to learn more and to return into congregational ministry having those things in my quiver. I chose to go to the Middle East. And the Philadelphia Presbytery decided to ordain me into ministry for that adventure. With the commitment or with the understanding that learning itself was ministry. That learning and listening in other lands to other people is a form of witnessing to the gospel. And so they said, this is your call to ministry. And of all the experiences I had during that year in Jerusalem and Palestine and in Israel, I remember places, I remember Holy Land kinds of things, I remember studies, but what stands out to me are people. Morally clear, morally courageous Israelis and Palestinians deeply devoted to truth and the courageous pursuit of peace profoundly changed my life, my understanding of the New Testament, 
and Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers, not peace brokers, peacemakers. Came back and decided I still had some things to learn, and so came into graduate school back at my alma mater, and so back to Evanston, Illinois, I went and, and began to think more there about how it is that truth can be claimed in a contemporary society that is pluralistic and full of diverse points of view, how truth can be claimed without doing harm to other people. Meanwhile, during while trying to think about all of that and learn a little bit more, uh, I was trying to figure out how to raise money to renovate an old house that was the campus ministry center for the Presbyterian and Methodist campus ministry and living in the house while water was pouring through the roof and the furnaces were breaking and it was fun. <laughs> and it was actually during that time that uh, my future spouse came on the board of directors of that campus ministry to direct us on what to do and so met Lynn and, uh, and I remember from that time an extraordinary um, adventure in learning but off I went to my first call in ministry, which was to a, a college as a college chaplain. Many of you know, you've heard me tell stories from Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, where I was forced to think even harder about the place of ministry in a secular world. Relationships were profound in that place and are still a part of our lives today. Deep relationships of people with good and challenging questions and passions for the world and students. Years ago, I, I think I told from the pulpit the story of a student named Peter Light. Peter was one of those students who was aggressively curious, passionate about figuring out what is real and what isn't real, struggling with his faith, and was willing to ask any question anytime. He'd walk into my office while I'm talking to somebody else. If he had a question, he'd knock on my door at 11.30 at night, didn't matter because he was on the hunt. Right? One year, one um, uh, Easter day while at the college, we had a student who took her life in her dorm room. And while I was tending as a chaplain does to all of, all of the doings around that and with faculty and other students and the like, Pete sort of found his way through the crowd and found me and said, uh, what? I said, yes, Pete. I said, give me the keys to the chapel. And I had... I trusted Pete, and so I just gave him the keys to the chapel. Didn't know why he wanted them. And he walked into the chapel and went in, he pulled all the candles out and the big tray full of sand. He unlocked all the doors, he turned the lights dimly on, he went over to the campus center and put up signs, prayer vigil in the chapel. In a couple of hours, the chapel, 800 seats, was nearly full of students holding candles and talking together, and I wasn't even there. The work needs more than us. And Pete was the, was the vehicle that, that day. I remember one uh, graduation weekend in which all the faculty were lined up to go march into the graduation. And this actually, Presbyterian pastors wear academic dress. This is my, was my, also my academic gown at the college. And, it was during the early 90s when AIDS awareness was, was going through the nation, rightfully so, and you remember the time we began to wear ribbons, and we do for many causes still today, and we wore war, red ribbons uh, in, 
in AIDS awareness, and uh, they were, someone was handing out ribbons to all the faculty, and they came to me and handed me my ribbon, and I went to pull it on, and I looked down at my robe, and I saw the two red crosses. And I realized in a way that I don't think I ever fully understood before that moment, that in the church we are always wearing our ribbons. That these crosses on the robes are, all, are the ribbons that call to attention all the cares and all the pains and all the passions and all the needs and all the tragedies and all the hopes and all the joys of all the world. Whenever we worship, whenever we bear the cross, we bear the world that God loves so much. I was married while I was at Bates. Our first son was born there, and then we left very quickly after that for my first congregation, which was the congregation where Dick Stifler bought a little leather-bound notebook for me. First Presbyterian Church in Wilmette, Illinois. who had a lot of patience with a young pastor who thought he knew more than he actually did. And I'm still that way, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but, he, but that congregation had been through a, a good chunk of trauma over a few years, and, and it struck me that all that was needed in ministry there was something very simple, a little hope, a little confidence. There were, um, there had been at one time, I heard tale, of lights that had walked, boarded all around the church that uh, showed off at night the beautiful stonework in this little sort of neo-Gothic church. And, um, but I was told that they hadn't worked for about 10 years. So they just, don't even bother, they don't work, don't even, they, it's, it's over, that whole thing is over. We had an electrician in the church one afternoon who was doing something or other, and I said, do you have a little extra time? He said, sure. And he said, uh, could you, I asked him if you could go outside and take a look at the lighting system to, that lit the church at night. And I said, it doesn't work, so if you could tell us if it can be fixed or if it should just be removed and a new one bought, and give me your opinion. He said, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, 45 minutes, an hour later, he came back into my office and said, yeah, I fixed it. And I said, you fixed it? I was told that it couldn't be fixed. He said, yeah, yeah, the bulbs were out. <laughs> 10 years, <laughs> the bulbs were out. Sometimes it just takes a little confidence and a little hope and a little decision to replace the bulbs and all will be well. Learned a lesson there about the church, and I think that the building is still lit up at night, even this many years later. I remember um, a group that walked into my office with that one afternoon and said, you know, we have been learning about a new way of doing church school, and we want to do that here. And I said, well, church school really isn't in our long-range plan here. We're, we're just fine. It's not on the list. And they said, oh, but this is what we're going to do. And I said, go ahead. And they created a learning style-based church school that changed the entire congregation. It changed the church by surprise. By surprise. Remember um, when I, my buttons on my robe started uh, coming off, and I only had about two buttons left, but I didn't have time to fix it, and somebody snuck into my office one night without telling me, and I came in the next morning, and all the buttons were... Anyway, little things and big things make the church and friendships that last 
through the years. I was called away in what felt to me like it was too soon from that church, but I was called into teaching for a time and joined a divinity school faculty for several years and maybe I still had some things to learn. Uh, what struck me teaching again of ministry students was how the high bar of expectation of knowledge in the church so deeply rooted in our tradition how that reminded me of advice that I was given uh, years before I even entered ministry by a pastor who became a mentor when he said to me and when, when I was about to begin this work in congregations he said a couple of rules one don't take yourself too seriously second take the work very seriously third never get those two out of order for the times I got that out of order I ask your I ask your forgiveness for the times that order gets right we do extraordinary things together I learned during those times of teaching how powerful the claim of the gospel is on us how it does inspire our gut our heart and our mind and how not one of us gets it right but everyone has an insight to share I had a student at the Divinity School who was an unusually bright and an interesting young person and he was um, I learned just in the edge of his graduation that he was leaving uh, New Haven for Turkey like the next day where he had committed his life to service and work on behalf of the church in Turkey. And he gave me a little framed Bible verse in, Turkey, in Turkish as a gift. He didn't tell me what Bible verse it was. It was written in Turkish. And he said, go find somebody who speaks Turkish and reads it, and they'll tell you what the Bible verse is. Do any of you read or speak Turkish? I still don't know what Bible verse that is. But it's been on the shelf of my office ever since. And I don't think I want to know because I want to be reminded that there's always more to know. And God speaks to all people, even in words we don't understand sometimes. And so there's a Turkish Bible verse on my shelf. Maybe you've seen it. We, um, we left uh, New Haven back into the con into congregational ministry in part because I, I felt restless to get back on the front lines of things and it was an old cathedral church of our denomination in an older community of our of our nation that invited me to be their pastor and so we went um, the church being an old cathedral church was a bit lost was in some ways a bit wandering was a bit caught in its past as remarkable a congregation as it was it was a humbling and inspiring experience to serve there and um, and it reminded me that vision matters that it's okay to be a little bit on the edge and not so comfortable because God can work if your head is a little bit above your skis if you're a little on the edge, the Holy Spirit is active. And also I learned that the past is not enough. The future is God's. I remember big experiments in ministry, ministry students who kept pushing the envelope of wanting to worship in new ways, 
One Sunday when we had from our vacation Bible school big paper mache animals waving in the breeze coming down the aisle and we had to promise the congregation it would only happen once. I remember a man in the congregation who spent every single day of his life repairing houses in a neighborhood in Philadelphia and calling other people there to join him in that work in a ministry called The Other Carpenter, remembering Jesus the carpenter. I remember Courtney and Judith. Judith, who you've met here, has been in our pulpit. Um, members of our congregation who had rich careers and lives but felt a nudge to change things and are now Presbyterian pastors. I remember one Sunday morning when, for reasons I don't fully remember, in the worship service, I said that a couple of the pastors would be available in the chapel after the church service for personal prayer for anyone who wanted to pray. I expected there would be five or six people come. And dozens of people came, lined up all the way out the chapel, reminding me and reminding all of us that it's not about the trappings. It's about holding hands and praying. There lies the gospel. All of this is just to make that possible. And so we were invited here to Pinnacle, which, if you'll forgive the pun, has been the longest place that I've served, and you've been very patient with me, but it's also been the pinnacle of my ministry. It has been a remarkable time here, and I am grateful for your patience and for your willingness to go this ride. And I still love the big visions that you have and the same visions that drew me here, a church with nothing but future with great possibilities ahead, a church that is ambitious for the gospel, as you say. And in your faith statement, you said, at the, at the foot of the sanctuary, or at the foot of the mountain, we built a sanctuary, and so you did. And you are ambitious for mission. I think of bulls for mission here. I think of, of passionate people, advocates of the arts, I think of people who have been ready to care. I remember swooping art projects that you've seen here in the sanctuary reminding us that God is bigger than what we see. People coming and going, people wandering and returning, people staying in touch. I remember a decision that was taken by your leadership, that it was time to eliminate the debt and you stepped up and did it so that you could imagine the future without feeling encumbered. We are partnered with so many people on the staff, in the congregation, in the community, in the nation, throughout the world. This church is so deeply connected all over. That's who you are. And all of this takes us right back to the Apostle Paul in that beginning of the book of Romans. There, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Romans, I want to bring a message to you. And then he stops right there, which is the important transformation. He stops himself right in the letter, and he says, no, no, no. I want to come so we may learn from each other, so that our faith may be shared. And so the transformation, which is the gift right in the middle of that passage from Paul to the Romans, the transformation from going there to being there and from being there 
to sharing together. The same pastor who talked to me about taking the work seriously but not yourself seriously and never getting those mixed up served the same congregation for 27 years and he spoke to me once of those years and saying there was a moment in his ministry there when he suddenly just for a reason felt didn't no longer felt sent but felt called and things changed which is Paul's transformation too from being sent to being called, because calling is mutual. Calling is a, is, a, is a word that calls us into dialogue, into interaction, into shared ministry. Albert Borgman, a philosopher, has wrote about something he calls the meaning of life indicator, in which he has standards that you can use to find out what are the important moments that teach you the meaning of life. In light of all this, I want to adapt that. And, talk a little bit using his indicator about what it means to find those moments and places where you're called to live. Irrespective of your feelings and your wrestlings and the challenges of our humanness. Moments when you say, this is the place I'm meant to be. These are the people I'm meant to be with. This is what I'm meant to do. And this I will remember well. Think of your own life and those moments when you could say those things. And there you have a sense of God's calling. That place where you are called and summoned and named and made. That place that you cherish and are cherished. That place where grace replaces perfection as the entrance test where forgiveness replaces judgment as the fuel of togetherness, where hope replaces fear in what drives decisions, where love replaces duty as we do the best we can to build each other up, to glorify God even in our humanness, and to find our way together. In those places we are saved. Here, we are saved. Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness and your support and your nudges along the way. And thank you for letting me not be ashamed of the gospel here in this place. I'll be in the pulpit next week. Amen.